Welcome to episode 4 of Shake the Sword, a podcast produced by the Tsikinia Shaka Center, the TCC, at the University of the Witwatersrand. In addition to its institutional home at Witz in Johannesburg, the TCC also has a kind of satellite office in the Western Cape. It's where this podcast is being recorded and produced, so I thought I'd give you a little audio tour. Somerset West is known for its spectacular location between mountain, sea and vineyard. But it's not all leisure in this part of the world. The commercial industrial stretch of the N2 highway that separates Somerset West from its seaside cousin, the Strand, is a noisy, busy, hard-working, making place. And it's here, among the angle grinders and the welding machines, the depots and the small businesses of Usla Park, that you can find the drama factory. Veteran of the stage and screen, Sue Dippevine, established the Drama Factory as a much-needed independent theatre space to support and enable the work of South African theatre makers. We at the TCC are inspired by her vision and are proud to be partnering with her. So here I am on stage at the Drama Factory, a good place to tell you a story about making Shakespeare. And specifically, picking up where we left off at the end of episode 3, a story about making Shakespeare in Nigeria. The year is 2014, and the scene is set at the University of Ibadan, where coincidentally, as you may recall from our previous episode, if you were paying very careful attention, Wale Ogunyemi's Are Akogun, a bilingual Yoruba English version of Macbeth, was first performed in 1968. Leap forward half a century, and Bernard Ogini is translating and presenting Hamlet, partly as a means of engaging with and critiquing post-colonial Nigerian politics. In particular, he finds that Shakespeare's appropriation of the revenge play genre provides a structure for exploring the death of MKO Abiola, who was elected Nigerian president in 1993, but was never allowed to take office. The analogy is not exact, but in Abiola one has a leader who, like old King Hamlet, was the rightful ruler, usurped and allegedly killed by poisoning. Now, Ogini was not concerned about any threat or other repercussions for wading into this contested political territory. By 2014, Abiola had become a symbol of democracy, claimed by prominent figures across the political spectrum. But Ogini was worried nonetheless. His nervousness stemmed from the negative attitudes towards the language into which he was translating Shakespeare's text, Niger, formerly known as Nigerian Pigeon. As we heard in episode 3, Niger is widely used in traditional and social media, is prominent in popular culture, and has a uniting function. As Ogini puts it, Niger is a universal language. Niger is a saviour language. Niger is a lingua franca. Now, in the sense that it's a language that cuts across all tribes. It's a saviour language in the sense that it's a language that, you know, saves the problem of communication between a tribe and the other. But it is still looked down upon by many, both inside and outside of Nigeria, as a language that is not appropriate for literary production. 
So back in 2014, before his Hamlet Ogapikin was performed, Bernard Ogini could not be sure of its reception. And I was also scared because it's Shakespeare and people tend to discriminate the language, people tend to hate the language, people tend to say no, this language must not be used for a serious drama like Shakespeare. So I was anxious and I was afraid and I was, you know, I was scared. If this experiment would work, then that means Pidgin is a tested and a trusted language. Hamlet or Gapikin was indeed very positively received by its first audiences. It has since been performed on numerous occasions and has received limited national and international coverage. But what does the future hold for Shakespeare in Niger? Can Shakespearean translations help Niger to escape the pop culture pigeonhole, as it were, and to shake off the stigma that it detracts from literary and dramatic creativity in English or in other Nigerian languages? Linguist, lexicographer and Niger activist Odirin Abonyi believes it can. In the course of my research into Niger, my focus was to examine Niger as a language that is not only oral, but as a language that now existed or exists in the written form. Given the history of the language, its evolution points in that direction. But on the overall picture, Niger is still seen in many quarters as a language that impedes the growth of English. That is actually not true. But that's the general, the ambivalent reception, I would say, that the text would have. This play would need to be staged not just only in somewhere like southwest Nigeria, where Nigeria is more like an Assyrian language, but in the south-south region, where the language has since become a Creole. It would improve the reception, the exposure, and the experiment of having Shakespeare reworked and remade, reinvented into this literary form that appeals to everyone. Yes, Nanja, which is the language of nobody and the language of everybody in Nigeria. We thus need to adopt in that overworn phrase a Janus-headed approach to Shakespeare. Paradoxically, we can use Shakespeare's authority to promote the use of African languages as languages of cultural production, of learning and teaching. But at the same time, there is a constant need to undermine Shakespeare's authority because it is built on, and in turn reinforces, colonial histories and colonial legacies. Hopefully, by now you recognize the Afro-jazz and funk-rock sounds of Fela Kuti, our musical soundtrack to this mini-series on Nigerian Shakespeare's. In our previous episode, we listened to his song Kalakuta Show. In this episode, it has been the 1971 release Black Man's Cry fading in and out. Now, many people listening to this podcast would assume, understandably, that the relationship between Nigeria and Shakespeare starts at some point in the colonial period, when Shakespeare's plays are imported, let's say, into Nigeria. In fact, Various new research projects are challenging that assumption, presenting the relationship between Shakespeare and Nigeria, or West Africa more generally, in a much broader framework that considers travelling stories, stories that travel to, from and around Africa 
to, from and around Europe. Stories that precede Shakespeare by decades or centuries, in some cases thousands of years. We know that Shakespeare borrowed, or even stole, his stories from a litany of sources, and that those sources in turn were shaped by other sources. We know that colonial and pre-colonial encounters between Africans and Europeans were always mutually informing, culturally, linguistically and otherwise. You'll recall that in the previous episode of Shake the Sword, we learnt about 20th and 21st century Nigerian adaptations and translations of Shakespeare's plays by listening to snippets from a conversation between Ifeolua Obuluwade and Lekon Balogun. But Obuluwade and her colleagues at the University of Bayreuth are driving a research project that also considers how we can think of influence or impact working in the other direction. Under the rubric of Travelling Knowledge and Transtextuality, African Sources in Shakespearean Drama, led by Susan Arndt and Michael Steppert, this project seeks to identify, contextualize and interpret the impact of African and also Middle Eastern or Western Asian textualities on selected plays by Shakespeare. In exploring how African narratives, visual arts and performative practices are likely to have traveled to Elizabethan England, and how such pathways can be proven and understood, this area of research focuses on textualities that have traveled in a primarily oral form, influencing or having an impact upon other written texts without their authors necessarily being aware of them. The traditional category of the source, a written text, is thus insufficient. Aunt and colleagues prefer the term resource with an asterisk between re and source. Abuluwade elaborates on this distinction. When you look at translation studies, it's based on the idea of source and target, and the idea that there is a single pure source from which a translation descends. We should throw away the word source and use resource instead because you see the source itself is never pure and it's never single. In most cases, it's multiple because it descended from all other sources. And all these other sources are embedded in what you think is that one pure source. You have like multiple layers of impact from different directions and over generations, so you might not be able to trace it in a linear way. In episode three, I mentioned Wole Shoinka's 1983 essay, Shakespeare and the Living Dramatist, an essay that starts out by repeating, albeit with some irony, the assertion of, quote, Middle Eastern poets and dramatists that Shakespeare must have traveled to North Africa and the Arabian Peninsula, because that is where he encountered the legend of Majnun Leila, which, Shoinka writes, quote, he, that is Shakespeare, transformed without acknowledgement into Romeo and Juliet. The doctoral research of one member of the Bayreuth team, Tagrid El-Hanafi, published in her book Transtextual Shakespeare, the Arabic and Persian Pretexts of Romeo and Juliet, traces the travelling of textualities from Persia via the Ottoman Empire to Shakespeare's England. This is an example of the more nuanced approach that Arndt's transtextuality and Abouluwade's resource study make possible. Abouluwade's research focuses on the transmission of Yoruba orature and in particular Ifa divination via the Atlantic or Mediterranean to early modern London. In order to undertake this, of course, closer study of African oral literatures and narratives is required. Here, Abouluwade talks about the material as well as the oral performative aspects of traditional or historical Nigerian literary and cultural practices, like the Ifa divination tree. Honestly, I think uh, there's a lot of bias uh, when it comes to oral and written works, and I think the mode 
of composition and transmission of, of African narratives is being used as an excuse to kind of dismiss or silence this knowledge. And that is what I have found. When you look at oral narratives that emanate from Africa, they do, they are, do not only exist in oral form. And this is the argument I make all the time. You will see that these narratives always have a performative and a material component. There is always a material component. In my research, for example, I was able to date Ifa, the tray itself, as far back as the early 16th century. And I'm still working. I'm sure I can date it much, much you know, earlier than that. And this is the part people don't look at. They only look at, okay, when was the first time that it was heard orally, the story? But there is no Ifa divination, for example, without the Ifa tree, because that is the page, the book, so to say, on which it is written. And if you look at many other cultures, you have the memory board, for example, of the Luba people. It works the same way. Oral narratives in Africa, has, they have a material component, and we could start by trying to date these material components in order to get uh, an idea of how early these uh, narratives could have come into being. So we need to be conscious of this bias and to know that it's not innocent and not buy into the narrative that because it's oral, then we can't justify it. A better understanding of the histories of oral literatures in West Africa also contributes to a wider project of relativizing Shakespeare, emphasizing that Shakespeare's plays are not the beginning and the end, not the definitive versions of stories that they are often presented to be. Instead, they are manifestations of travelling narratives, pit stops or way stations, if you will. And therefore, what is called universal in Shakespeare's plays comes from elsewhere. It is something both prior to and beyond Shakespeare. Lekon Balogun discusses this in introducing his own version of, or creative response to, Romeo and Juliet. He starts by situating Yoruba oral literature and Ifa divination as practices of textual or narrative exchange. One of the ways to get some of these things would be to look at the proverbs. One thing the Yorubas understand and they say in one of their proverbs is that oro nile. And when, when you conceptualize oro as word, then you take it into another level and it becomes text. And you take it to another level, it becomes story. So what they are saying is that it is impossible for one, a story to be domiciled in one place, that stories travel endlessly. So that's part of the, their own cognitive system. And the, if I central to it about the fact that the frontiers of knowledge is very wide and it is not enclosed, what that is suggesting is that the Yoruba system of knowledge, the Ifa body, is open to, to assimilate ideas from other sources. And it's, it's a testament to his recognition of the fact that knowledge is always shared. It is impossible for you to know. There's even one if I say that because yesterday is not going to be like today, that's why you divine every day, which could be the basis to say we are always on constant research because we want to update our body of knowledge. We are continually drawing from other sources the same way that other people are drawing from our own kind of knowledge. I think that's the basis for what I was trying to do in Africanizing Romeo and Juliet in terms of the story of the perfect gentleman, which has an origin in Yoruba folktale, but it's impossible to even claim that it has an origin in Yoruba folktale because the story is all over the place. It's just like you talk about the trickster. The trickster is not restricted to the Yoruba. The trickster is everywhere. 
in North America, they're everywhere. There's always certain semblance that all of those stories we share that you know this particular story is not domiciled in one place. It continues to travel. And I think that's the whole point about Shakespeare himself being a very shameless plagiarist, picking stories from all over the place. And then people talk about the genius of Shakespeare. But the question will be, where he got those stories from? Balogun's playfulness is also a serious methodological provocation. Openness to discovering new knowledges also entails the recuperation of lost or marginalized bodies of knowledge and the recognition of past literary, cultural, linguistic exchange. In our conversation, Abuluwade picked up on Balogun's reference to the trickster figure, which is central in her own research. The trickster figure is uh, androgynous, which means it's both male and female, and neither male or female. So, so to say, so I prefer to use it, the neutral word for, for the trickster. And even though I know people don't really agree describing it as the trickster, because, you know, the idea of the trickster actually is also very culturally specific and it differs uh, from, from one culture to the other. But for me, rather than the tempter that somebody else suggested, I think I kind of really still prefer the, the trickster. Uh, the Ifa divination or Ifa corpus, which is known as the body of knowledge of the Yoruba people, cannot exist or cannot be done without the trickster, which, which is called issue at the head of it. And I found quite a lot of uh, trickster features in Shakespearean works, for example. And this was these were not just limited to, to characters. Of course, there are comic type of tricksters that a lot of people focus on when talking about tri or, or Shakespearean tricksters, but tricksters that follow the type of the issue-like trickster that you cannot say that these are bad people or good people. They kind of are just right there in, the, in between. They are liminal. You can't really place your finger on what they are or who they are. And they are there to just trigger things and to cause things to actually show their true nature. They are there to make you see what is lying right there beneath the surface. And that's what, you know, makes that, uh, I call it a phenomenon, really quite intriguing for me. And I so far have looked at that aspect in, in Shakespearean works, uh, in Macbeth, arguing, for example, that we do not see the, the weird sisters as witches. If you look at the, the earlier folios of, of that text, they were not known as witches. It was subsequently in editing Macbeth that the description of witches came in. They were actually uh, sisters of di divine sisters, sisters of divination who could pre predict the future. And they were not even really classified as women. If you look at their description, they were seen, if we look at what Banco said, they were described as not quite female or male. And these were the, you know, the kind of features that uh, intrigued me. And a lot of arguments have been made that because of the relationship between King James and his, you know, his enthusiasm with witchcraft and the relationship between him and Shakespeare, Shakespeare was trying to uh, curry his favor by depicting um, that scene. But I would argue otherwise, that I think Shakespeare was actually kind to, trying to critique this idea of believing that everything that bad that happens to you is not as a result of your own choices, but of an external force like a witch or a wizard. I think this Shakespeare was actually critiquing that idea. Say, take responsibility for your choices, for what happens to you in life. Don't put that responsibility on spirits or ghosts or a, a third party. And 
the trickster actually if west african trickster for of ifa divination which you also find in benin as is it's not only available in yoruba culture you actually find it in quite a number of other cultures in west africa i think it really depicts this uh, aspect and my argument is that this trickster figure impacted shakespeare when he was writing uh, some of, if you look at some of the trickster features in Shakespearean works, it was actually, I don't want to use the word influence with this, another word we are trying to get rid of by looking at impact because influence tends to assume that there is a passive party and a, an active party. Meanwhile, impact doesn't have that connotation. That's why I keep using impact. So, so there is an impact of the trickster figure actually from West Africa in Shakespearean works. What's liberating about this conceptual shift to impact is that it is not stuck within the single linear trajectory that influence seeks to describe. Although it might seem slightly simplistic to invoke the paradigm of historicism and presentism, one could say in this case that it is possible both to adopt an historicist paradigm in which we weigh the evidence of West African literary traditions finding their way into Shakespeare's plays, and to affirm a presentist emphasis that allows us to ask, what happens if we approach a play such as Macbeth, keeping in mind the characteristics of the trickster in West African narratives? How is our contemporary reading or interpretation of the so-called witches in Macbeth enriched and enlarged by placing a figure such as Eshu front and center? Thinking about Nigerian Shakespeare through the paradigm of traveling tales seems a suitable way to finish off this episode of Shake the Sword. We've heard about stories traveling from West Africa to Europe and England. We've heard about Shakespeare's plays being exported to Africa. We've heard about Shakespeare as a sparring partner to Nigerian playwrights and translators writing back to the colonial center, as well as writing home, making Nigerian politics both their center of gravity and their object of critique. And we've heard about Shakespeare as an ally to language activists seeking to affirm African languages from Yoruba to Niger. And of course, we've heard from Fela Kuti. Here he is for the last time with Black Man's Cry. Mm -hmm.